Hello and welcome everyone to another InventRight live full hour Q&A. My name is Andrew Krauss. I'm the co-founder. If you guys could just type in yes. I just need one or two of you to type in yes if you can hear me. You type in yes if you, anybody can hear me. There we go. Okay. Good deal. Good deal. Sorry about it. I had some problems with my uh, fancy mic last week, so I figured I'd stick with the geeky headset because you guys don't care what I look like. You just want great answers, right? All right. So um, let's just jump in. We're going to have fun. Obviously, our focus of InventRight, if you've been watching our YouTube show, is licensing. So when you license a product to a company, it's their money, their workforce, and their existing distribution. You don't need to start a company. You don't need to manufacture. You don't need to raise money. It's something you can do with a day job or another business and you can license products the rest of your life. So it's a very empowering uh, business model. And yeah, it is a business model to use rather than starting your own business and selling products yourself. Retailers don't really like one product companies. So to think that you're going to start a business, manufacture a product yourself and sell it, they, they like those manufacturers that have, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 50, 80 products to choose from. It's less people to deal with. So you can fight tooth and nail to try to launch your own product and sell it yourself, but you're fighting an uphill battle against retailers that would rather deal with large companies rather than um, one product, one SKU companies that are underfunded, can't deliver on time, quality issues, all the issues that's, you know, when you're new to something, you're not going to do a great job with it. But with licensing, you just license it to that big company, receive a royalty, and um, they can sell huge volumes. So it's not perfect, but it is a, a very empowering business model that we've been guiding people to do for the last 20 years successfully. And we had 11 students license products uh, just last month alone. So we're very, very proud of that. Uh, let's see. Uh, Jason says, sorry for the duplicate question from last week. Wasn't able to get the audio or hear the answer. Yeah, we restarted the stream, Jason. So sorry you didn't hang out. Um, could you expand a bit on licensing logos, songs, et cetera, for use on products, please? It's really simple. You could specify if they like the name of your product that you're licensing that as well in addition to the product. Um, you wrote song or logo. So whatever you want to license to them, you can bundle that with the product, whether it be a logo or a product name, or a song, or whatever else, and you're utilizing copyrights and trademarks to do those two other things. So that is um, a definite possibility. You can do that. It's whatever you can negotiate with a licensing deal. Um, whatever, if as long as they agree to it and you'd agree to it, you can do just about anything with the licensing deal. However, there are standards that things that work and make sense for most for both parties in most instances. So. Don't get too creative with that. Um, uh, o. White says, how soon after submitting a PPA can one begin to seek prospects interested in licensing and submitting ideas? So as soon as you get confirmation, when you file electronically, I forget if that happens immediately or within 24 hours or two days or what have you. shouldn't take long to get electronic confirmation that you filed it, and then you should be able to immediately start reaching out to companies. Now, filing the provisional patent and then sending a long rambling email with a few random terrible pictures, that's not the right way to do it. You want to send a sell sheet, a marketing piece, eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, or a short video, um, under 60 second video, to show them the benefit of your product, how they would sell it to their customers. So um, don't think that, oh, I filed a PPA, now I can just go out there and ramble to folks. I'm not saying you, you're going to do that, White, but um, you need other things. And really, the proper order of things is to file the provisional patent after you made your list of companies, after you've done your market research and all the other products in the space, after you've done your marketing piece. Because in the process of doing those things, you, you're going to find things you weren't aware of. And you're like, oh, 
Maybe I got to cover another variation in my provisional that works like this. And so it should really be the last thing you guys do before you reach out to companies like the next week. Now, if you want to spend the 70 bucks and do it ahead of time, that's fine. If it gives you the warm and fuzzies, but you might have to do it again because once you start doing your research, you'll find that there was something similar and you're going to want to file a second PPA. And you can do that. We cover that quite often on these Q&As. You could file a PPA company could have some objections to some aspect of it. You're like, hmm, I got a fix for that. And then you file another PPA. Now you got two. And each one you're protected from whatever was in each one from that date. So let's say the first one had A and B in it. And the second one, same provisional, but you added C, you've been protected for C from that date, providing you file a full utility patent and reference those provisionals because provisional patent applications are not patents. If you never file a full utility and reference those provisionals, they, they, there's just a placeholder that if you do file a full utility, you can have those filing dates for what you put in there on those dates. Sorry to speak so fast. I've talked to a bunch of people that have attended these live chats and everybody says they appreciate me speaking fast because if I speak really slow like this, you know, I might only be able to get to like a quarter of the questions. Um, however, sometimes I'm sure there's a downside to that as well. But you guys welcome to um, give me any feedback that you want. Now, with regards to our students licensing products, Amit Kumar and, and others, no inventor on the face of the planet will license every product that they work on. You'll license some and you won't license others. And there's a big reason for the approach that we take with InventRight is that we, we you know, you can spend $70 on a provisional patent application, a few dollars on a virtual prototype, or maybe you cannibalize some product through it together, took a picture of it, it looks fine. And a marketing piece, just a sell sheet or a video. So now for a lot of products, not all products, there are complex products, require a lot of research, but for simple products and many sometimes somewhat complicated products too, you can literally spend less than two or $300 on the project. And the, the project, you know, you're licensing it, maybe it's earning you 20,000 a year, 50, 100,000, 200,000 a year in royalties, whatever. It depends on the product and the kind of volume being sold. But you will, nobody, doesn't matter how good of an inventor you are, licenses every single product they work on. So the mission of our company is to help our students with the projects while they're with us. So there's the highest chance of success that we can guarantee. We can't guarantee everybody's going to license their product. And, but they'll have that real life experience. They can continue on. And, and I've told people to say this to me and then I do a double take because I'm like, why is he being so rude? I'm like, oh yeah, that's what I told him to say. So I, I love it when students say to me, Andrew, um, I, I get this. I don't need you guys anymore. Because that's a big part of what we're about, empowering you with real life experience, with real projects. So you're working on your project from day one with your coach. And then now you can keep doing that the rest of your life. But watching a video, um, doing a Q&A, uh, reading a book, you think you know it, but you don't really know something until you do it. So hopefully that answered your question. Um, at Kamur, Kamur, sorry for pronouncing that right. Um, Okay, so Jason says, one more question, if I may. Let's say you're lucky enough to do a licensing deal. I don't think it has anything to do with luck. I think it has to do with work. Um, uh, but but I, I get what you're saying. You, um, can you see, share what you view as a lucrative deal in terms of royalties? It varies tremendously. So, um, but let, let's, so let's talk about like the, the lowest. Let's talk about the, the lowest of the low. Let's say it's... Um, well, first off, when you're licensing, you're, you're, there's three factors that determine the amount of money you make. There's the royalty rate, there's the price of the product, and there's the volume being sold. So people get obsessed about the royalty rate. Oh, 5%, only 5%, or, oh, I want 10%, or 2%, or whatever it is. The most common royalty rate for consumer products is 5%. We have plenty of students that do deals at 6 or 7 or 8 or, or, or more. And then there's students that do deals that are maybe um, 3 or 4% sometimes. But that is not, like, if the company is only going to sell 1,000 units, and you're getting a 25% royalty, it's not going to add up to a hill of beans. The whole point of licensing is that you tap into the distribution that they have. 
So for you to sell 5,000 shoes, you would struggle. You'd be doing this full time. You'd have to dump everything else you're doing. And you, congratulations, you sell 5,000 units with a 20% profit margin and you're making this much. But you license to this big company and they're selling half a million units and you're making this much on each product, but it adds up to way more money. So it's, again, the royalty rate, the price of the product. Is it a 99-cent product? Is it a $59 product? Is it a $600 product? There's a big difference because that's what you're getting the royalty rate on. And then what volume are they selling? Now, I'm not saying some people go, oh, I want to license a product that's more expensive. Not necessarily because usually the more expensive products will sell less volume. But those are the three factors that determine how much money you make. So for a consumer product, I would say if you're, if you're making less than $20,000 a year for the average consumer product, it was a pretty small company without very good distribution. But again, it, it, it depends on those royalty rates. So now you could license this new whoopee cushion to a company that's only going to sell a couple thousand units a year, mom and pop company. And, and maybe it only earns you 5,000 in royalties during the entire life of the product, you know, but if you are smart about licensing and your goal is to make money, you, you're not going to work on those types of projects. You're going to work on and license to companies that literally will hand you back your product if it's not doing decent volume. So let's say this company is doing a kitchenware product and they're in Bad Bath & Beyond, Target, Walmart, and a few other places. Okay, If it's not doing significant volume, they're, they're going to take it off the shelves and they'll hand it back to you and you'll get it back. Okay. So, um, you know, yeah, if you're earning, you, you said is 25,000, you know, and let's say one product you license, let's say it earns you $25,000 a year for six years. What is that? Um, so that's $150,000 for six years. And then it goes down to nothing because the product didn't make sense. They stopped selling it because something else came in the market. And then another person is earning um, $100,000 a year for five years. Well, that's half a million dollars. Or maybe they're getting $200,000 a year for five years. Well, that's a million dollars. It depends on how well the product is, but it's so risky to launch your own business and you can never do the volume that they're doing. So to put that on them and you just cross your fingers and you hope that they will the sales will go through the roof. Sometimes they don't know, but they're the ones taking the risk, not you. So it can vary dramatically from $5,000 to a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, but most products, you're going to be making it as they go. You get paid your royalties quarterly. And think about it, not all products, because the patent's 20 years, are going to sell for 20 years. Now, sometimes it's like it's not niche but it's not huge volume, and you're just kind of in this hidden space, and nobody's knocking your licensee off, and it does sell for 15 years. Other times it goes crazy for two or three years, and then, boom, sales goes to zero because something else came in the market. It's not relevant anymore. Um, it can be all over the map for how long the royalty lasts because how long the product sells well, you know, and one way to keep a product alive is to always be giving your licensee, the manufacturer new versions to keep them relevant, to keep the product relevant. So that's the one big thing you need to do when you license is to always look for that next version of the product or, or offshoot products. We have some students that have licensed like 20, 30, 40, 50 products. And every one of those has licensed variations or ancillary products that had to do with the other products they licensed to the company. Uh, a different version, a different SKU, or an add-on to it, or an improvement, or something like that. So that is a big thing long-term when you're an inventor. Um, uh, so Anne, Anna Boney. Um, Drew. Hey, you cut names off. You cut letters off my name. My name is Andrew, not Drew. But um, but that's okay. And Anna Boney, I probably didn't get your name right. Um, but you said if a company's website states they accept outside submission, should I still make contact via phone to let them know that I'm sending them my sell sheet? No, I don't think it's necessary. I would say if you're not getting a response, if you look at the submission page. And if it says we'll get back to you in two weeks, and if you want to check in with them at three weeks, that's fine. So, but look at what the details are. If they didn't give you details, you might say, I submitted through the site. What's your typical response time? I'm perfectly happy waiting. And then 
some submission sites on websites is kind of a black hole. Maybe there's an intern looking at it every two months. Maybe another company, the marketing manager is like on top of it every week looking at those things. It can vary dramatically. So if they have a submission page and they're not uh, getting back to you, don't hesitate to reach out to um, them on the phone and, and say, you know, one thing you can do is you can say, well, I submitted on your site. Um, but it's, it's been about three weeks. Is there, is there somebody I can always send it over to, or should I just wait for that? Just be very polite, you know, uh, Clemson says, hi, Andrew, do you have any thoughts on developing the best name for your product? It's really not important. Um, it's important. It's not important. It's important that you don't create a name that's so distracting that, um, it, it, uh, takes away from your marketing presentation. I like descriptive names. So descriptive names are like when you take the name of it and then you take a one sentence benefit statement and they see a picture, they're just like glancing at the name, seeing the one sentence benefit statement and then seeing the picture and boom, it all kind of flows in their head and within like four seconds, they're getting it. So I think being cutesy and clever is, for the most part, not good when you're licensing. Most of the time, they're going to name it something else anyway. But being super cutesy where the name requires you first understand it, and then you're going here, and then you're going there, and you're like, oh, now I get the name. If they don't get it right away with your clever name, don't be clever. Be direct to the point. Make it a descriptive name. You know what I mean by descriptive? It's just it's describing the product somewhat like two words so that you do that then the benefit statement the picture you're glancing down at all those things for like under six seconds and boom they get it i see too many inventors doing really cutesy names that just make things more confusing because um, it's not that important um, but don't so it, it's okay to make it a little generic but descriptive it's actually a good thing most of the time um, Uh, Jack says, hey, Andrew, when following a PPA along with diagrams, should you include any pictures of the prototype? So again, any everything we share tonight is not considered uh, legal advice. Please take the services of an attorney if you need legal advice. Um, these are, this is just a learning experience. So should you include diagrams? Yes, diagrams are great. Um, pictures are great too. Uh, with a provisional patent application, there are no formal requirements. You could scribble on it with crayon and they would accept it providing you filled out your contact information and paid the fee. Do you want to do that? Absolutely not. Um, but uh, you can actually include, take pictures of your prototype and send it in. One thing that's really nice, which is not completely necessary, is if you do line drawings instead of sending pictures in, and then it kind of looks like patent drawings. Don't go out and spend a bunch of money with a professional patent drafter that does line drawings for patents because you don't have those same requirements for a provisional. And there are other, other techniques you can use. You can, you can take a picture of your prototype. Uh, was it Jack? Yeah, Jack. And then you could put it on a glass table, shine a light underneath it, and then you could trace the prototype, the picture of the prototype, um, and get kind of a line drawing. So there's some benefit to have a kind of like line drawing looking pictures in your provisional because it looks professional. It's like, it looks kind of like a patent, right? But you don't need to comply with the standard um, requirements for line drawings in a full utility patent at all. You could scribble with crayon, you could scribble it yourself, um, but I, I really don't think including pictures of your prototype would hurt you either, because um, at that point they've shown quite a bit of interest. But if you really want to take it to the next level, you could include line drawings, which you could pay somebody to do or you can do them yourself. Um, and I gave you one tip on how to do that. Uh, Ida, hi, Andrew. Thank you and Stephen for all your help. You're welcome, Ida. Um, I love all the videos. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, check out our videos, guys. We've got a ton of videos. And if you haven't, click on subscribe, click on like on this video. And forget the live stream if there's a like button. I think there is. Um, I'm on this side, on the interface side, the presenter side. Uh, and help us out, like our videos. We're getting, uh, we have 40,000 plus subscribers. We're growing all the time. Uh, David said, do, do you need a PPA to license a product? Absolutely not. Um, we highly recommend it though. 
um, with all our students, we always tell our students and our fans, always file a provisional patent. We have software on our site called Smart IP, which you can utilize to file a provisional patent application. Um, you know, if you go to an attorney, attorneys will typically charge $800 to $2,500 to file a provisional. That gets expensive. You can file a provisional yourself for $70, and that's the U.S. Patent Office fee. Um, and so we firmly believe that our solution, the smart IP solution on inventright.com is a great solution. It's only like 99 bucks. So it's very affordable, but you could find some other resource to do that too. And it's always good because it gives you that perceived protection. You can legally say patent pending on your marketing materials. So David, I recommend that you do file a PPA. Now, can you license to a company without it? Yeah. The, the contract doesn't have, you have to depend on intellectual property on patents. You could get them to sign a contract that they have to pay you for the product. And it's not dependent on patents. And the vast majority of the time, whenever we can get a deal done for our students that is not dependent on the patent, that's even stronger. Sometimes they can't get away with that. A lot of times you can't, but a lot of times you can. And that way, that means that they have to pay you regardless of any patents. And so this perception that you're always selling the patent or I can't do a licensing deal without a patent is ridiculous and it's not true and anybody that tells you that doesn't understand licensing and um, now what we always believe is you want that perceived protection of a provisional patent which it all is just perceived protection it's not actual patent it's a it's a patent pending status that if you later file a patent you can reference that provisional but it gets everybody moving forward so why wouldn't you for 70 bucks now, some of our students that are really i'll give you a scenario in which it some of our students don't. I'm not advising you to do this, but some of our students don't. There are some industries you have to be incredibly prolific with a lot of ideas. And they're literally okay with you sketching up an idea, like novelties. Um, maybe you got this, you know, funny little gag gifts. You know, you send a product or two to this marketing manager and they're like, you're so clever. I'm not interested in these two, but I'd love to see more. And you ask them and they say, you don't need to come up with these fancy presentations. You can just send us a sketch or... <laughs> say, you know, send us a picture of a similar product and tell us what it is or a crude mock-up or something. And so in that case, if you're sending them like, you know, 10, 12 new ideas a month and you're like, I don't want to file a provisional every time for that. And with novelty ideas, there's usually not as much money at stake because um, they're not going to sell as much volume usually on some novelties. And, and so you have a good relationship with this company and you're just doing it with them. You, you could, or some of our students have, not filed the provisional and just went ahead and sent it to them. And they've got the paper trail and what they sent them and when and everything. But I really don't advise that except if you've become really kind of a pro and you're real comfortable with certain companies and things like that. Um, it's a good question, David. Thank you. Um, uh, Sar says, hi, Andrew. I filed for a non-provisional patent. Okay, so he spent the big bucks. He filed for a full utility. Um, still not granted, and that's uh, he. These are I'm just inflecting my thoughts here. It takes uh, patents one to three years to issue, guys. And some of you guys, it's a lot faster than it used to be. But don't think you file a patent it takes them that long for a patent examiner to get back to you, so they're ready for their argument with the patent attorney, which they're called office actions. So then the patent attorney in the patent office. This is me explaining it in layman's terms, will argue about the claims and what's going to get granted and provided and what isn't. So um, so he wrote, I, I filed for a non-provisionalist, full utility, it's still not granted. What is, the, what is the IP to rent inside the licensing agreement? Um, okay, so our students, I would say, I don't know the exact percentage, but I would say, 90 to 95% of our students do deals without an issued patent. I would say 95 or even more. And they only have issued patents because they filed it before they came to us and they didn't realize they didn't have to do that, most of them. Um, so you could, are we do licensing deals all day long without the patent being issued. And so if you can write up that contract, I don't care you have a patent. Sometimes you matter, I want to make it dependent on the patent. It's like, well, that's not good. So if they have to pay you regardless of what is in the patent or anything, that's always stronger. So even if you have a patent that's still pending and not issued yet, we would try every time to get that deal done and not even mention the, the patent 
or be the patent being dependent on you being paid. And our students, most of the time, they file provisionals. And maybe the company gave you the money to give to your attorney to file a full utility. You're just going to sit around waiting one to three years, you know, for it to issue. And you're not going to wait for that because the product very well be irrelevant at that point. So you're going to move forward. So, um, yes, but they might want it to be SAR to the patent to be mentioned in there. And if it's pending, perfectly fine. Any company that will only do a deal with you if the patent is issued is a freaking dinosaur. It's a major red flag when you see a website where they say they only work with people with issued patents. These are usually what I call mega corporations, and they're, it's, they're idiots. I'm going to say it. They're idiots to do that. There might be a rare industry where it works because what they're saying is, inventor, you have to file a patent not knowing if anybody's interested, sit around waiting one to three years for it to issue, maybe the technology, the product becoming irrelevant, and then you can show it to us. That's not open innovation. That's archaic thinking. And most companies don't feel that way. Very few do. Um, but there are some industries that can be difficult there. So, um, yeah, so don't worry about it, Sar. Uh, you'll be fine with a patent pending status. Perfectly fine. Um, uh, admit... Uh, Amit, uh, who owns development after licensing? The manufacturer or the inventor? Who's development? I don't know what you mean, who owns development after licensing. So when you're licensing, you're never selling your idea. You're renting or you're leasing it. If they don't perform and under various guarantees, the most common being called minimum guarantees, they have to sell so many units every quarter, every three months. And if they don't, you have the right to take it back. Doesn't mean you do. You might just put the screws to them and say, come on, guys, let's try some more things. Let's try to get this product, push it out more. Um, so let's see. So you, you always own the product, but if they keep performing, it's perfectly fair for them to continue to manufacture it and pay you royalties. But that's what you signed up for. You agreed to those terms in the licensing contract. And we helped you when you're a student of ours, we've helped you figure out what is reasonable for them and for you. Um, so you write, who owns the development after licensing manufacturer or inventor? So usually, uh, I mean, you know, there's terms like, so you, you're not going to go license this to 20 other companies that are going to sell in the same place that they're at. So the licensing agreement will specify what rights they have. Do they have the right just to sell it in these geographies or these markets? And, and if it's not, if it's in markets or geographies or distribution channels, other than what you signed up, with with the company what the agreement says you have the right to go license it elsewhere in other areas if that makes sense a lot of times it doesn't make sense and this giant big company you're perfectly happy with them being the only one because they're huge and they can do decent volume other times it might make sense to hold back on some things and do a different version or the same version in other areas in other ways um janet uh the Global Pizza Director, that's an interesting title, Janet, um, from Nestle was interested, and I sent him the virtual sell sheet. He has not replied to two follow-up emails. Do I find, do I try to find his phone number and call him up or just give up? Well, Nestle is one of those major uh, companies that are, aren't going to be the easy, easy to work with. Um, very, very difficult. Um, but, you know, Janet, can you type in below, like what you said he showed interest and you sent him a virtual sell sheet. Now he's not replied. So, so what did he show interest? Usually it's acceptance of, yes, you can send me your sell sheet. And then when you send it, now they showed interest. So if you send him the sell sheet and he hasn't replied, how do you know he's interested? That's my question. Did you mean by interest? Like, yes, you can send it to me or you know, I'd be if you could type in here, it'd be a great learning experience for all of us, um, Janet. What in what way did he show interest? Then I can further expand upon it, and everybody can learn from that. Uh, Jeff said, "I have a product that can be sold individually for convenience and in bulk for cost savings. Should I put both versions on the sell sheet and the PPA? Okay, it can be sold individually for convenience and in bulk for cost savings." It really depends. If the potential licensees you're showing to could sell it both of those ways, then you might say that it could be sold either of those ways. If 
if a lot of the potential licensees would never sell it in bulk and it would only sell one-offs, well, why do you want to show something to them that they're like, we don't do that? But sometimes you can show those two ways it can be sold. I can't really answer that question, though, Jeff, without understanding what the product is. So that's, that's kind of a tough one. Um, Uh, David says, does, is it okay if the sell sheet has pictures from Google? Well, there's something, I can't offer that, answer that specifically, but generally, David, there's something called fair use. So if you're privately showing other people's products um, with your pitch, you know, and you put a notice down at the bottom that says all logos and trademarks are, are uh, the rightful, are... Um, have complete and total ownership by their trademark and product owners, and this sell sheet is only for illustrative purposes, then you could actually use another company's product in there. Now, you can't do that publicly. I had a student once, and they didn't tell me that they created this whole website, and they had their product up with NFL logos all over it. And a, and a couple, like a week after they signed up, the NFL was sending them cease and desist letters. I'm like, why didn't you tell me you did that? What, what, what makes you think it's okay to put NFL logos on these products and put it up publicly where the public can see? You can't do that. And so I said, take it down right away and notify them. And they never got back to him and he was fine. But privately showing your product for license and utilizing other people's products in it, as long as you have a disclaimer saying you don't have the rights for any of these products, that they're merely for illustrative purposes, people do that all the time and you're privately sending an email, and only the marketing manager is seeing it. The public's not seeing it, but you can imagine you can't use like NFL logos on your product in public. That's an infringement of their trademark. But you can do that privately, and you, but you got to have a notice in there that says it's just for illustrative purposes. So, and that's not even what you were asking, David. Yours is much simpler. Can I use some pictures that I found on um, Google to privately, privately show it, um, it being used? And the answer is most of the time, yes. Now, there are people that, um, you know, sell like Getty images and they sell images and you're supposed to pay to use those. So it might not apply there. But um, if it's for private use, our students do it all the time. And you just have to have disclaimers in there saying that all the trademarks and products are the rightful um, property of their owners, and the, this and the they're just being used here for illustrative purposes. And so you need to be very clear about that. But it's called fair use. You can go on Wikipedia and look up fair use to better understand that. Again, if you're not sure about anything, please consult an attorney. Nothing here is legal advice. Um, Let's see, Janet expanded. Oh, yes, it was sent to me. It was send it to me. He hadn't seen it. I just described it to him, so maybe not really interested. Yeah, so she did some sort of description. He said, yeah, send it over. I'll take a look at it. So we don't really know, Janet, if he's interested yet. Um, it's very common for people not get back to you and to be super busy. And whenever you do get back to somebody that said, yes, send it on over, don't like ever, ever send an email. Well, I'm just following up. Did you get my other email? That's not being respectful of their time. You always forward the actual email and you, and you say something like, you know, see the, the sell sheet you said I could send over. Can you take a quick look at it? And it's, it's okay to say something like, if it's not a right match for you, simply reply with not a right match, making it easy for them to say no. Because a lot of people, they're cool. They just, I mean, it's not cool. It doesn't help you, but they they, they don't want to reject somebody, what they think is rejection. Oh, no. And so they just ignore it, and and you need to follow up with them. And so, you know, I'd rather people, I even somebody's a little bit abrupt, I'd rather have that. I'm like, good, I know, then I can move on. I got 28 other companies. Um, but it's okay to say, if it's not a right match, simply reply, not a right match. And you'd be surprised how many people will actually reply like that then. So that'd be a tip, uh, Janet. So that's a good learning experience. They didn't actually show interest. They kind of showed interest when she kind of teased them a little bit with a little bit of a description. Sometimes people, though, that's good, Janet. I think that's legit. But um, sometimes people go, oh, they're, they're interested. I'm like, 
what did they say? What did you send? Well, I didn't send them my sell sheet yet. I'm like, well, how would you know they're interested? Did you tell them about the product? No, no. Oh, you mean they said, okay, send something over. Okay. You know, um, it's, you know, when you're new to this, it's just new to you, you know? So it's understandable. People make these mistakes in perception. Um, uh, let's see. Global pizza director. I love that. Um, Janet. Uh, uh, Kristen. Never seen Kristen spelled that way. That's kind of cool. Uh, can you license a product to two companies? Like if you wanted to license uh, with KitchenAid and Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. So again, what I always say in these Q&As, as long as they're not stepping on each other's toes, it's perfectly fine. So let's say it's a kitchen product and it would be used in a commercial kitchen like at a Dunkin' Donuts. You know, you got this better you know, a uh, higher, more durable version. They're going to use, this is just a random. I don't know if this is the case for you, um, Kristen, but let's say a durable version of this kitchen product that just, it's metal. You could beat the hell out of it and it won't fall apart. But there's a, a cheaper version. It's not cheaper. It's perfectly durable enough for home use. And they're not stepping on each other's toes. Dunkin' Donuts is not selling it on the same shelf at Walmart for this kitchen product, they're using it commercially in their kitchen. So the the lesson here, guys, for everybody is, yes, you can license to multiple companies, different geographies, as long as they're not stepping on each other's toes, but you're not gonna license to two companies selling at Target or two companies selling at Walmart, Walmart on the same shelf. It makes no sense, okay? There's always rare, rare exceptions, but 99% of the time, no. Um, uh, Ida, I had a idea about eight years ago, but it was patented. They never did anything with it. They, I had an idea about eight years ago, but it was patented. They, oh, okay. And they, meaning the patent owner, never did anything with it. Now, 20 years is up. How would you go about um, to go to the next step? So yeah, when a, if they if the patent expired, now whatever that was is public domain. Anybody can do it. And so you might want to license that with some improvement. And you're like, oh, okay, now I'm going to try to license this and I'm going to make some little tweak or improvement. And because um, it's kind of weird to try to license that Ida exactly the way it was. Oh, well, you said they never did anything with it. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I would always try to get some little improvement. Yes, you could license that exact same thing if they're willing to pay you for it. But I would file a PPA on some little tweak or something that didn't work, um, where it could have worked better. But this inventor that filed the patent 20 years ago, uh, according to Ida, never did anything with it. It wasn't. It, but even when it was in the marketplace, you could still license that and do some little improvement. So my best advice, do some little improvement, get a provisional patent on the improvement. You can't patent that thing that's been out there for 20 years, Ida, because that's public domain. Anybody can do that. But you could keep people from doing that little improvement. And even if you're like, oh, that's not my improvement. It's not critical. It'd be just fine without it. It gives you this ability to say patent pending. The company's like, oh, that's cool, especially that it was never in the marketplace. You can do that. And, and I, I'm just amazed when patent attorneys and, you know, they go, oh, no, you can't do that. I was like, what? Our students do that all the time. Um, so you can definitely do that. Uh, David says, can I file a PPA in the UK? So, David, all our UK students and students around the world just file U.S. provisional patent application. Um, and that's you're more than likely to license to a U.S. company or Canadian company. Maybe European company, too, is decent. Um, but you don't need to restrict yourself to your own geography. And the U.S. and the U.K. and all of Europe and Canada, Australia, all part of what's called a PCT, Patent Cooperation Treaty. So even if you don't technically have a provisional patent application in your country, file a U.S. provisional patent, and it's going to give you the right to later file what's called a PCT and then file internationally. Um, I can't get into all the details. Again, nothing here is legal advice. But the short answer is just file a U.S. provisional. You'll be fine doesn't matter that you live in the UK. Um, so uh, this is a different David. How do you calculate the minimum guarantees? You, you need to interview the company about what they can sell, and then you take a small percentage of that. 
you can't if they're like, oh, we could sell half a million units a year. And you're like, well, I want minimum guarantees that you can sell four hundred and ninety nine thousand. That's ridiculous. You know, if they're minimum, if you if they felt like or if you feel like they could sell half a million units, you know, your minimum guarantee might be 50,000 units. It's just a guarantee to ensure that they can't take it and sit on it. If they sell more, they need to pay you more royalties. So it's a, usually a very small percentage that you would be satisfied with. But if you wouldn't be satisfied with that, then you might not want to do that. You might want to. So it's a lot of interviewing the company. And there's a lot of details there. And the deals flow a lot of different ways there. So I can't cover that in great detail except to say it's a small percentage of what you think they can do and what they think they can do. Um, and it's, there's a lot of interviewing early on with companies. They'll share stuff they shouldn't share. And, and now you get the upper hand. I, I don't like to say upper hand, but, um, you know, you can kind of, you know, I don't like to say you can use it against them either, but it's to your advantage to interview companies soon and early and they'll share stuff they shouldn't have shared with you. And then they're going to have to stick with what they said. And that's the best way I can put it. Um, and most people don't, most inventors don't do that. Our students do because we, we make them do it. Uh, we'll make them do it, but we say you get, get gather this info. It's going to be tremendously helpful. Um, uh, Richard said, hi, I intend to license my product uh, to hire companies to the construction industry and get a percentage of the higher fees. Okay, now I'm confused. Do you have any experience with this type of agreement? So I intend to license my product to hire companies to the construction industry and get a percentage of the higher fee. I don't know, Richard, can you give me a little bit more detail? We've still got 19 minutes left, so I'll page down to the bottom. Give me a little bit more detail to be a little more specific. Um, uh, uh, Handy the Sock. I love your handle. Uh, we don't know what your real name is. I'll just call you, I'll call you Handy. How about that? <laughs> hey, hey, Andrew. Thank you for the question, by the way. I'm just joking around. Uh, hey, Andrew, on the topic of licensing out a brand to a potential licensee, is it better to offer them the option to not pay an upfront fee to greater your chances of them taking your licensing deal? Upfront fees, guys, are notorious deal killers. Um, you want to make money as they make money. They're taking a ton of risk. If you ask for them, they're, maybe they're risking $100,000, $150,000 to launch your product. And now you're going to ask for fifty dollars up front? Might as, well, might as well shoot yourself in the head right now. Don't do that. Um, hold on a second, guys. I got to turn off this other line so it's not buzzing me. There we go. So um, do not ask for um, large amounts of upfront money. Um, yeah, just don't even go there, Handy. Don't 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 go with uh, trying to get. You know, maybe you get them to pay, um, give you some money. So you can give that money to your attorney and file a full utility patent, reference your provisional patents for them. So I'm not saying no upfront fee is okay. I, I don't. I would have never go beyond getting just some money to pay for the patent. I wouldn't go beyond that most of the time, vast majority of the time. And, and it will be a while before you start to see royalties because it will take them three to nine months to launch the product. Then you get paid your royalties every three months. So for most of our students, it's over a year before you start to see money. But our students that are level-headed are okay with it. They're like, hey, yeah, this big company took on my product. They're taking all this risk. They're launching this. They're doing all this work, and I can move off, license other products, and, and keep doing what, what I'm doing. And, you know, that realize that. Don't ask for all that money up front. It's, 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 you won't get it almost ever. And, you know, the, I'll have to say this. The, the, the few invent, the inventors that I've talked to, over the years that told me that the company stole their idea. The vast majority of them, they got interest from the company. They started moving forward. And I, I would ask, because, and I can sense it. I can tell when an inventor's whacked out like this and off track on this. And, and I, so I ask, because I'm just always curious. And I ask, and they, they confess like, oh yeah, I asked for a quarter million. I'm like, what and and I, I thought that was reasonable. I told him I wasn't gonna budge. You know, I'm like, okay. 
And so what happened is the company liked it so much and they moved forward and the inventor waited a little while to say this crazy shit. And that is crazy shit. Um, and it was just swearing there to get your attention. And then the company's like, well, screw you. We'll go around you, you know? And whereas companies wouldn't normally do that. Now it's never happened to one of our students because our students wouldn't ask for a quarter million up front. I don't care what it's on, you know? Um, the only time that that makes sense is when we have one of our students that have been venturing the product and they have inventory and they have distribution and they have the tooling. Okay, you're kind of buying the company plus doing a licensing deal. But if it's a pure licensing deal, don't, don't, go, don't go doing stuff like that. And the people that I've talked to, they say, oh, the company stole my idea. You know, and I'm not saying it's okay for the company to do that, but they pissed the company off so much and just said, this is a wacky inventor. And maybe they looked at the intellectual property and said, oh, we can get around it or something like that. So, um, but yeah, so uh, Handy, don't, don't, don't do that. Um, I don't know. This is like a math question from Debbie. Royalty question, $20 retail costs five to make. Wholesale price is 15. Royalty rate is five. Is the royalty rate figured on the 20 or is it figured out on the 10? or the wholesale, okay, or the cost to make. No, it's on the wholesale price. So you can do whatever you want in a licensing contract, but 99 times out of 100, you want to make it on the wholesale price. So it's the price that they sell to the retailer for, because it's easy to track. If you never need to audit their books, which is not something you want to do, but if you, it's, we always tell our students, always get that in the contract, and we guide them to do so. But if you ever need to audit them, it's the price they sold to Target or Walmart for. They sold to the retailer for. Very easy to track. And it's always on the wholesale price. That's what you want to do. But for some weird reason, if they're selling direct, it's on the direct price. So I've had students do deals with DRTV companies, and it might be on the direct price that they sell directly to consumers for. So I've seen that as well. Uh, I like this question from Philip. We got about 13 minutes left here. What is the best response to a no? Um, the best response is to ask for feedback, but not in a whiny way. Say, no problem. I fully accept your no to licensing you know, this product, but can I have a few seconds of your time? Could you have any feedback for me? Was the marketing presentation confusing? Is the benefit of the product not clear, but just not a right match for you? Is there any feedback you can provide me? If you can't, no problems. I look forward to uh, submitting more products to you in the future. So one thing you can do is ask for feedback. Now, here's the thing that you need to do is you need to get used to, let's say you have 25 companies and you ask everyone for feedback, but only one in five actually gives it to you. Well, one in five out of 25 is five companies giving you feedback. And then you're happy with the feedback from the five companies. Maybe you see some consistency there. Maybe it's all over the map. Maybe they're consistently saying this is the issue and you're like, oh, we need to fix that. Now you go back and you submit to all the others and say, look, my product was a little off here or there and I'm resubmitting. Can you just take a look at it for five seconds and tell me if it's the right match? Now, if five, so the point I wanted to make there is you're, you have to define what you see as rejection. If you are approaching 25 companies and everyone you ask for feedback, not in a whiny why, you say you fully accept their no and can I have a few seconds of your time to give me some any feedback you have on the product. Anything would be appreciated. And if you can't, no worries. Um, but if one in five gives you feedback and you think that's a success, you're doing great. Now, if you only ask feedback out of 25 companies from three companies, not one of them gives you feedback, and then you're like, well, feedback doesn't work. Well, you're, you're setting yourself up to think that that is rejection or that's why it doesn't work. A lot of licensing is a numbers game. So, Philip, great question. Try to ask for feedback. And then also another way is you can, you can also say another thing you can do is not ask for feedback. But you can say, um, are, no problem. I, I realize this one's not right for you. Are you open to more? Are you open to me submitting more? And most of them saw the first one. So most of them are going to say, yeah, sure. And so now next time you got a new product that's kind of in this space, you know, you got their name, you got their email, and you just drop them an email. 
So now you're not thinking I got rejected. You're like, oh, I made a contact. I work on a kitchen gadget. Maybe the next kitchen gadget, 15 out of the 25 companies you just approached with the first one, you look at their product lines. Yeah, 15 of these is okay, but I'm not going to bother these other 10 because that's going to make me look like a rank amateur because the second product obviously isn't right for these 10. Just because they said, yeah, you can send me future ideas doesn't mean I should be blasting ideas that aren't right for their product line. And you will burn that bridge if you do that too many times. You know, and you don't want to do that. You want to be respectful. Look at their product line. So I love that question, Philip. Thank you for that question. Thank you all for your questions. Good questions. Um, let's see. Hey, some people are answering questions for me, guys. Thanks. Um, uh Electric Travel Worldwide. Hi, Andrew. I'm Evan, the owner of ETWW, Electric Travel Worldwide. I'm going to take your PPA course tonight or tomorrow. Uh, great. And great info. Thanks, he says. So, yeah, you could just go to InventRight. I think click on other products, and then you'll see, I think it was Protect Your Idea. And you'll find the Smart Pitch. Sorry, not Smart Pitch. Smart IP product, which will help you write your provisional. And I'll give you a good tip because you don't have a coach, you're not getting this, is 80% of filing a good provisional is think of, thinking about the variations, workarounds, improvements. Think about the other versions, 80% is good. Just as good, but not the version you're pitching. Maybe 70% is good. But don't waste your time throwing a different version that's half as good. That's not competition. You don't want to get obsessive about your PPA, spending months putting variations in there that wouldn't even be marketable if they were next to your product. Put other versions that are marketable and not the version you're pitching and think like, how could I knock myself off? What are the other variations? And that is not easy when you've been thinking about this product for a long time because you're like, this is what it is. This is what it is. This is what it is. And now you got, when you write your PPA, you got to get out of your head. And this is what it is, is fine for your marketing materials, but not for your PPA. Oh, what could it be? Put your feet up on the desk. I was going to put my feet up, but you guys don't want to see my feet. <laughs> put your feet up on the desk and go, what else could it be? And you're creative. So you need to go back and be creative again. And that is the most important thing when filing a provisional. And then the software will help you with the rest. Um, uh, admit, Emmett says, what are the major cons of hiring an invention promotion company service to find a licensee versus licensing on your own? Well, here's the one shortcoming I can share with you. In the 20 years I've been doing InventRight, I talk to somebody every day or every other day that's been taken for 10 or 12 grand by an invention promotion company. I have never met one single inventor that has ever had an invention promotion company license a product for them, ever. Talking about my personal experience. But every day, every other day, I find somebody that's been taken for 10 or 12 grand, nothing came of it. Um, we had 11 students licensed last month. Stuff happens. So if you look for somebody to do this for you, um, you won't find anybody that I know of that will license it. And they won't be as interested in your product as you. And a lot of these companies, they just want your money. They don't want to license your product. They just want your money. Um, and I find it funny when inventors say, well, I send my idea to this invention promotion company. And then they wanted to charge me like 12 grand. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. And now I'm worried they're going to steal my idea. And I'm like, yeah, they're lucky to license their way out of a paper bag. They're, they're, you know, that, that when a company's when companies, when their business model is to essentially pretend to work on your invention, not work on your invention, and take your money, how how adept are they at licensing your product? Probably not very adept. So they're probably not the people that are going to steal your idea. Um, uh, so let's see. Uh, Andrew says, thank you for doing the live Q&A. You're welcome, Andrew. And Congratulations on your excellent name. Um, uh, you said, how, how difficult is it to get into the veterinary medical field? I find that's a, that's a good field. Um, it's different. So the stuff that's selling at um, a PetSmart or Petco or Walmart or Target pet products is not necessarily the type of product a vet might use or sell. So vets will sometimes sell things to 
um, pet owners that you can only get from the vet. And other times they're using implements or devices or, or equipment that you would use at a vet. So I, I wouldn't say that that is a difficult one to get into. I think it's something you can get a hold of. It all depends on the product, of course, but um, it's not a, I wouldn't put it in the category of like one of these really difficult fields. Um, it, the distribution channels can be a little weird with the veterinary supplies. Um, but you, obviously if you supply people that supply vets, then you license to them. Um, looks like we have somebody that's really new and I diesel curious is their handle. Will you explain how an idea concept can be patented? So since you're very new and there might be other people that are new here, um, you get, if you file a patent with the patent attorney, it can cost you eight to $20,000. If you file a provisional patent on your own, it's only $70. It's not a patent, it's a provisional patent application, it's a placeholder. So Diesel Curious, what we do here at an event right is advise people to get a provisional, immediately start reaching out to companies, seeing if there's interest, and if there is, get them to pay for the patent. So if you're that new to things, um, the advice is don't get a patent, get a provisional patent application. See if there's interest, because you're not going to be playing that game very long if you spend 15K every time you come up with an idea, nor is it necessary. And companies will license your ideas all day long with a provisional patent application. So hopefully that was helpful. And anybody else that's really new, hopefully that was helpful to you as well. Um, JB says, I found my idea made by someone, but my version is cheaper and disposable. How do I cover that in the PPA or do I make sure theirs does not include that version? So, you know, you found it and it's made by someone. But the big question is, JB, like, is it selling? Is it selling well? Is it on a website that nobody even knows exists? Um, either way is fine if it's not selling well because some inventor put it up on a website that nobody sees and can find and they have abysmal sales, the sales might be abysmal because they don't know how to market the product, not because the product's not good. Or let's say it's a company that's selling it like crazy and it's selling really well. Well, then you should feel good about that. Well, they have a product that's kind of in this space, but mine's cheaper and disposable. I know there's a market because theirs is selling. And now I'm going to do my cheaper and disposable version. So I would take a look. You know, you're going to have the company name there, and I would do a, a patent search to see if they filed any patents. Um, I would see on their website if they have any patent pending status. A lot of companies, guys, they sell products, and they don't get a patent. So it may have never been patented. And if it's been out in the market for more than a year and nobody got a patent, that is public domain, and anybody can do it. And so, and then you could actually still protect the improvement that would make it cheaper and disposable, JB, and you can license that improvement. So whatever is different about your product in how you made it cheaper and disposable, that's what you cover in your PPA, okay? And again, everything I shared tonight is not legal advice, blah, blah, blah. Seek the service of an attorney if you need legal advice. Uh, <laughs> um, Okay. Uh, Ricky said, hi, Andrew, would like to know what kind of information you could give a person like myself just starting out working with a company like InventRight. Well, there isn't any other companies like InventRight. We're kind of unique, but okay, working with us, they would like to license or sell my idea. Um, well, just to make it clear, Ricky, we guide and coach and mentor you to approach the companies that would license and purchase your idea. We don't do it for you, but we guide you through everything, including the negotiations, your marketing piece, your list of companies, your filing of your provisional patent, we guide you through it all. And then you're gonna be approaching companies that can license it. So we don't do it for you, but we're guiding you so much, um, you're doing everything right. That's, that's, that's how our company works. Um, the company. Okay, uh, yeah, we're gonna wrap up here, but uh, Richard, expanded on his question. He wrote, companies who hire out equipment to the construction industry, okay, giving me a percentage of the fee they charge for hiring out my product. Well, that's pretty simple. So what Richard says is there's companies that um, rent construction equipment to companies that do the construction. 
Okay. So there's companies that rent this equipment out and, you know, you would probably be, and then there's companies that make that equipment. So there's an additional player, right? So let, let's keep it simple here. Let's say uh, Caterpillar, they make bulldozers. Okay. And so then there's companies that rent Caterpillar bulldozers to construction companies that then use them. Right. So there's the bulldozer company, Caterpillar. There's the company that does the renting to the construction people that then do the construction. Okay. And you could use this for other things. So you want to know who is making these types of products, Richard, that could then sell that product to the company that then rents the product to the construction companies. Some so the companies might rent directly to the construction companies. It might vary. So you have to look at that distribution channel. Um, and you know, you know, if if your product is um, you know, uh, uh, something you're going to rent at Home Depot for 29 bucks for the day, it might not be the same company that you're going to license to at, that you're not going to license it to Caterpillar just because they make products that people then rent, you know, and they're making huge um, uh, bulldozers. You know, they have to be making somewhat products in the same space. But that's something that our coach would guide you along. And, you know, usually they, they have you go out, do some research. Okay, let's define this distribution channel. And then they're like, oh, okay, I see how that works. Okay, now you're going to do this and that. Now you're going to go here and there. Um, Philip says, thank you so much. Handy says, thank, thank you for answering my questions. Janet says, thank you for your time and knowledge. Um, uh, Amit says, thanks for your response. You saved me money and time. You're welcome. I love hearing that. Um, sometimes patent attorneys don't like me because I save people from various scenarios. I'm like, why are you filing a patent now? It doesn't make sense. Um, uh, Polini, this was an easy one. Is it hard to license ideas to the dental industry? No, we have a bunch of students that have licensed products to the dental industry. So it's a great industry to work in. Um, uh, so Electric Travel Worldwide said, uh, hi, Andrew, I'm very brand new here. Can I give you a percentage to get it to market for us? The answer is no. We take no percentage whatsoever, but we will help you license the product to a large company. It could be a small or medium-sized company too. Usually it's a larger company and we don't take any percentage, but we're going to make you do the work, but we're going to guide you exactly what to do. And you get an email, Andrew, I don't know what to say to this. And let's say you send it to your coach and it's, um, let's say it's Scott. He's one of our coaches. And Scott says, oh, you get that all the time. Here's how you're going to reply to that. That's how our students move forward and have that confidence. If you look for somebody to do it for you, you're going to find an endless list of shysters. Um, it's just how it is. And if you guys are still tempted to look for somebody to do it all for you and you say, I don't want to do any work, go to inventorfraud.com, follow those links to the Federal Trade Commission, and you will run screaming. Um, you will not find somebody to do it all for you. I know that's weird when you're new and you're like, what? It makes sense. I have inventors have ideas, and you, but they would have to charge you an incredible amount of money to, to do that if they were really doing it but there's a lot of companies that don't really do it. They just pretend to do it. They keep your money and go, oh, nobody was interested. You know, there's a lot of that going on. Federal Trade Commission tries to crack down on these companies, but inventors don't bother to read the contract. If you read the contract, you would run screaming, you know. Um, so just do it. You guys can do it. You really can. Um, all right. Um, underdogs in the trucking industry you're from california you plan to work on someone out of the country should i get a provisional patent yes you should it's not a ppo underdog it's a ppa provisional patent application called a ppa um, so i would get i would definitely get a ppa um, all right guys i think we're we're gonna call it a night it's four minutes past the hour i did a full hour i love doing these you guys ask absolutely really good questions and I, I hope that everybody feels like they benefited from my answers. Um, I want to say something that I say quite often at the end of these uh, chats is that for most of you, inventing recently or a long time ago became part of who you are. And when you come up with ideas all the time and you don't feel like they'll ever stop, you know you're an inventor. 
Um, maybe you don't come up with them all the time. But you came up with one. You're like, oh, yeah, I come up with ideas from time to time. You're an inventor. And so if you don't become empowered with the skills to license your products and reach out to companies, um, it's just going to, at some point, it's a rush to come up with new ideas. At some point, it's going to start to become a thorn in your side because you're like, you came up with an idea and you're like, oh, I saw it in the market, you know, and then oh, it happened again and again. Or maybe you're not seeing your product in the market, but you're like, I know this is a good idea. And maybe before you found us, you thought you needed, you know, 10K for a patent and 5,000 for a prototype. But now you don't, you know, you don't need either. You can get a provisional patent, you can do a sell sheet and you can get out there in front of companies. So whether it's with our help or somebody else's help, Inventing is part of who you are. You need to start to take action at some point. Maybe you're like, hey, Andrew, I'm just swamped right now. It's crazy. I was homeschooling my kids and, and I'm so busy with my business. But maybe two weeks from now or two months from now or two years from now. But you need to decide at some point I'm ready to do the work. And hopefully these Q&As and watching our YouTube show, it's going to help you. Um, become empowered, realizing you don't need to do a lot of things you thought you needed to do, but you need to do some things you weren't even thinking about and how to do them. And if you want to become a student of ours, you can go on to inventright.com and you can click on coaching, learn more about that. We'll guide you. But regardless of whether you're doing it on your own or doing it with us, you have to do the boring stuff. And that's all the stuff other than coming up with the idea. You don't have a choice. You have to do it. But you're all, I think, perfectly capable of doing it. So I remind you guys, kick care, keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you next time. See you guys. Bye.